There is tension in the church youth group, uh, not ours. Um, this, is a, this is an illustration. Where's West? I didn't want him to squirm. Well, sorry about that. Maybe there is tension in the church youth group. I don't know, but I don't, I don't know too much about it. But there's, in this hypothetical church, there is tension in the youth group because a few of the girls are feeling verbally bullied by one particular youth group member. And they've said something to the youth pastor about it, but he doesn't seem to see the problem and he's not doing anything about it. And it doesn't help that the bullying girl is the pastor's daughter. So without telling the youth pastor, one of the girl's moms gets on the phone with some of the other parents and says they should all stop letting their kids go to youth group until something is done about this. Here's another example. It's prayer time in Sunday school, and one of the kids wants to thank Jesus that Billy was able to go to the amusement park with us last Saturday, even though his family is really poor, because the church helped them and gave them some money. When asked where he heard that, the child says, my daddy's a deacon, and he told me. But now Billy's family isn't coming back to church next week. Two worship team members are hanging out after practice, and one of them tries to encourage the other one by saying, you know, I know you don't have the greatest voice and you're not the greatest singer, but I really love the way you look so worshipful when you're on stage. (laughs) Two church members are battling back and forth on social media about the relative merits of masks and vaccinations. It starts to get personal. Before you know it, people are taking sides and unfriending each other. The church choir recently went on a ministry trip, and two members who aren't married to one another spent a lot of time together when they didn't have to, always sitting next to each other on the bus and going off on walks by themselves. Nobody's really sure what's happening, but somehow word has gotten back to the woman's husband, and now the whole family has disappeared from the church. The pastor of a church has recently become very passionate about his vision for small groups, and he's picked out a year's worth of material and told all the leaders that they have to study this material with their groups. But the material seems kind of questionable to a couple of the leaders, and they mention it to one of the elders. But the elder happens to be the pastor's best friend. And he tells the leaders that if they can't teach this material, they're rebelling against church authority and against God. Now, the stories you have just heard were completely made up um, by me. So any resemblance to, to anything taking place at First Alliance of Lexington is purely accidental, with the possible exception of the masks and the vaccines. But... But <laughs> we haven't gotten to that point. But every one of the, you probably would agree with me that every one of those stories that I just told you is quite realistic. Some of them are actually partially based on things that I've seen or, or heard from other places. And I am sure that if I gave you some time, you could come up with a few examples of your own and tell me some pretty good stories that were like half made up, right? Having to do with what happens in a church. Let me say this when this kind of thing happens in a church, I think Satan takes notice of it. I think he kind of raises an eyebrow and he thinks, you know what? Here is an opportunity that I can't afford to squander because this, with this I now have a wedge that I can drive right through the heart of this local church fellowship. And sadly, sometimes he's right and that's what happens. Now I mention these things to set the stage for the passage that we're about to read, which is sometimes a tough passage to take in because the topic is not a pleasant one. And and in this passage, Jesus says a few things that to many of us don't sound a whole lot like Jesus. It's also a passage that is often misunderstood, often misapplied, and and sometimes even used as a weapon. So let me ask you to turn to uh, verse 15 now of Matthew 18. And we're just going to read these six verses ending here at verse 20. 
This is Jesus speaking, still in this discussion with his disciples. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus gets really, really practical and down to earth and specific in these verses here. And so um, we're gonna, we, we can do that too. We're going to take the passage that way. We're going to be ta- talking about taking some concrete steps and give you some concrete challenges at the end and things like that. But before we go there, I want you to understand, I want to point out that this passage does not exist all by itself. This passage is part of a very well-integrated chapter in Matthew 18, which is all about what I've called kingdom community. You know, living together in God's kingdom family and, and doing it in such a way that we become a true kingdom outpost and we can shine the glory of Jesus all around to the people who are watching us. And believe me, people are watching the church. In the verses that come after this passage, which we'll look at next week, Jesus starts talking about radical forgiveness within the family of God. In the verses right before this, those are the ones we actually looked at last week, and they're all about the value of of the precious people in Jesus' family, the little ones, he calls us. And right at the end of that paragraph, we saw that our attitude toward those who are struggling should not be, well, at least I'm not as messed up as that person, so count one person not as spiritual as me. But no, our attitude should be, oh no, how can I go back and help that person get on his feet and get back to running the race? Jesus says we need to go after the ones who are going astray to encourage them. We have to go after the ones who have doubts, the ones who are being neglected, the ones who are under spiritual attack. We need to take ownership of these issues and and help these people come back to spiritual health. Philippians 2 reminds us that we are to, to pay attention to the interests of others, not just our own interests. And so what Jesus is talking about now, starting in verse 15, these verses we just read, is really just a continuation of that thought. This is part of his loving response to the little ones who need help, which is to say this passage is not about punishment. It's about loving restoration. Can I say that again? It's not about punishment. It's about loving restoration to the family. And Jesus here is treating a very sensitive matter. He's saying, what about the ones who are causing problems? What about the ones who are in one way or another sinning against others in the church family? And what about all the offenses, big and small, that happen because this stuff is going on? How do we deal with that? And Jesus knows how even even little things can quickly escalate and get out of hand, and his concern here is not merely for the individuals involved, but you can tell it's for the church as a whole, because there's a lot at stake here. The good thing is there's also a lot of tools available to us, and there's a lot of authority available. If you look at what Jesus says about that binding and loosing, he is saying the earth has the, 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 the church has the ability to, to, to call on earth some things that God has already put in place in heaven. We have the authority that is is delegated from Jesus himself to deal with these issues. Now, a lot of churches will apply these these verses that we just read to what is called church discipline. 
and that is a formal process uh, to, for dealing with church members who commit certain serious or very public sins that have the potential to become very destructive to the church or to people in the church. So you'll, you'll see church discipline happen in, in, in certain areas like unrepentant marital infidelity or willfully causing division in the fellowship or someone who's teaching false doctrine and refusing to yield to biblical correction. And this can happen at First Alliance, and, and, and when it does, the process is undertaken by the elders according to a very carefully thought out policy that we are actually given by the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and it is largely based on principles that come from this chapter here from Matthew 18. But let me also say this, you do not have to be involved in a church discipline issue to apply Matthew 18. It can be used for any conflict or any offense or any sin against one another that happens in the local church. A lot of other churches will also try to apply Matthew 18 to the problem of abusive or domineering leadership in the church, as in the example that I gave you, that last one about the pastor who's being kind of dictatorial about the small group teaching material. But we see over in, in books like Timothy and Titus that, that, that problems with church leadership are actually treated in a different way. Leaders are held to different standards. Our misdeeds and our failures occasionally have to be dealt with more formally and more publicly. And so our elders have to have enough integrity and enough courage to stand up to the pastor or to stand up to another straying leader when necessary. Because there are bullheaded pastors out there or around here, or whatever, in here, hopefully not in here, there are bullheaded pastors who refuse to listen to concerns about their leadership or, their, or the way they have hurt people, and, and they point to Matthew 18 for their justification, and they will say, well, you didn't come to me privately, like it says in Matthew 18, so your words are not valid, so you're obviously just being divisive and rebellious. This happens. So if something like that were to happen here, please know that I trust our elders to have good judgment and to approach me if they need to regarding offenses like that or regarding my leadership or a decision that we've made or whatever. And while we're on this topic, and I know we're going to get into the passage in a minute, but I need to say this too because of the day in which we live and the increasing number of reports of, of domestic abuse, child abuse, and different forms of sexual abuse in the church, even having to do with church leaders. If you come to our church leadership with a concern in this area, I promise you that you will be taken seriously. We will consult with our district leadership as necessary. We will respect your privacy, and we will take biblical and compassionate and careful and sensitive steps to try to help you. So if you're wondering if you can come to us, I know it could be hard, but we want to be here for you, and we will take those things seriously. So I just wanted you to know that. Now, having said all that, and I guess that was a bunch, but, but let's get back now to the more everyday kinds of applications of these verses where Jesus is going to tell us if a brother or sister sins against us that we, do not, that we don't sweep it under the rug. We take ownership of the problem. How do we do this? Well, step one is this. If a brother or sister sins against you or offends you, step one is don't deny it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Now, it is possible to overlook an offense. Can I say that again? It is possible to overlook an offense. This does not mean that you've ignored the problem. What you do here is you decide, you make a decision to absorb the offense and not bring it up. You forgive the person to God, and you decide in this case that you're just going to try to move on. For instance, I mean, it's not only possible to do this, 
Proverbs 19.11 tells us that it is actually to our glory if we overlook an offense. So it's a good thing. So it often doesn't have to go any farther than that. If you think about the example, the silly example I gave you where the one worship team member told the other one she was like a lousy singer but looked good on stage, it might be possible in this case for the offended party to say, you know, that one kind of hurt. You know, acknowledge it. But I, I think I can process it and go on. I mean, she'd probably feel so bad if she realized that she had made me feel that way. She'd probably be just mortified if we even had the discussion. So it's not worth talking about. I'm going to forgive her to God right now, and I'm going to swallow this one or try to and go on. That's good. But what if she can't? What if, what if she becomes self-conscious about her voice every time she tries to sing? What if whenever she's on the platform, she finds herself thinking less and less about worshiping God and more and more about what her facial expression is looking like? What if, because of these things, every time she runs into this other worship team member, she feels a little bit more anger and resentment toward her every time? Then what? You know how sometimes you should have gone to the doctor, but you didn't? You know, that little nagging thing has become something big. Or you should have gone to the dentist, but you didn't. And now that, that cavity is now going to be a crown. Or you should have gone to the mechanic, and you didn't. And what should have cost you $65 now is going to cost you $865, and you got stranded somewhere. Little problems in the church also have a way of festering and turning into big problems. And if this offense that you are dealing with is having lasting effects, if it will not go away, it needs to be dealt with before it causes real harm to you and maybe to the other person and maybe even to the whole church family. And so step two is to approach the person who caused the offense one-on-one. Okay, one-on-one. Jesus tells us to start small. Nothing public happens right away. Do not bring other people in right away. And that is, get this, even if that person is kind of difficult to approach. And this is a tough thing. I know this is a tough thing. It can be a little bit awkward. It can be a lot awkward. Your, your heart will race. Your hands will get sweaty. Nobody likes confrontations. Nobody. On the other hand, some good things can happen too. I often share... Um, especially with husbands and wives um, in marriage counseling, something that was said by author Gary Smalley and probably other people too, but he said this, that conflict is often the path to intimacy. Do you know that? Conflict can be the gateway to intimacy in your relationships. That's why it's so important for husbands and wives to learn how to deal with their conflict in a constructive manner because they're going to have it Successfully dealing with a problem like that requires vulnerability. It requires sharing deep emotions with another person. It requires listening to another person's heart and, and really understanding and accepting what they have to say. And so it's real, conflict is really, in a lot of ways, it's just an invitation to a deeper level of connectedness with a person, a chance to learn about what's inside that person's soul. And that leads to intimacy. I have seen this happen in my life, not only in my marriage, but with friends in this church with whom I've had some difficult discussions, and that's been true whether I am the offender or the one being offended. Let me skip ahead to something I would normally say at the end because it comes at the end of the passage. But when Jesus says, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst, he is not just talking about prayer. 
Usually we take that and we apply it immediately to prayer, and it does apply to prayer. But listen, this whole section is dealing with issues that have the potential to hurt relationships and hurt churches. And what Jesus is promising here is that he will, he will generously give us everything we need if we come to him for help in this area. And that also when we do this, his presence will be with us in a special way. When church members are dealing with conflict in the body, it's holy ground. It's holy ground. There's incredible opportunity here for the devil, but also for Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, when you're going through difficult times, when you're having conflict, I'm going I'm to come a little closer and I'm going to hover just a little bit over you in the room there. No, he says, I'm going to get right in the middle of it. I'm going to be in your midst. You could translate it between you. I'm going to be right there. So when believers make an attempt to deal with conflict in a godly and loving way, that is one of the things that brings the king down from his throne room and right into your living room. His authority extends to every part of the church, and it extends to your very personal issues and to your conflict. He knows the devil is trying to divide you, and he wants you to know that you are not alone in dealing with thing, this thing, so have courage and face the issue. It, it may pay off not only in an offense being forgiven or a misunderstanding getting resolved, but it may pay off with a deeper and more intimate relationship between two people. It often happens. It often happens. But then, okay, great, but what if the person refuses to listen? Can that happen? I mean, what, what, if, what if this lady shares her hurt with the other worship team member and all she gets in response is, why are you being so sensitive? I mean, I was just trying to be nice. How can you accuse me of something like that? Well, the hurt just got worse, right? So now what? Well, Jesus says, okay, this can happen. If it does, then step three is to take one or two people along with you and try to have the discussion again. Notice he doesn't say, share it with one or two people. That's different, right? Can you believe what she said? That's more like gossip, right? So now you've become the offender. And then, of course, it gets up. You don't know how, but it ends up getting shared more and more. And people start to quietly take sides. And before you know it, hurt is multiplying and a wedge is developing between a larger group of people. So Jesus says, stay on target. Stay on target. Don't talk about the person, but take two or one or two people with you to talk to the offending person again. And by the way, and this is huge, so please listen. He doesn't say, take your two best friends in church with you to talk to them. I've seen that. That is a disaster. In chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul calls out two ladies by name who aren't getting along. Their names are actually in the Bible because they couldn't get along. These are two faithful servants of Jesus. They're great ladies. And he challenges them to get together and get on the same page. But then he calls an, on another person in the church, someone he calls his true companion, and he asks this true companion person to help these two ladies deal with their issue. Listen, when you... When you need to take someone with you to approach someone who has hurt you, you are not looking for moral support. What you need is a true companion, someone who is true not just to you, but to the other person as well, and to Jesus. This is a person who above all is gentle. Gentleness is huge here. Like in Galatians 6, when we restore people, we do it gently. Someone who's fair-minded, someone who is compassionate, someone whom both of you can trust because this person is walking with God. That's who you take. 
Or what if that doesn't work? What if I do that and then the person still stubbornly refuses to listen? Jesus says, okay. Step four is to bring it to the church, which in our context does not mean posting it on the church Facebook page. It means, it means taking it to the elders or an elder so the elders can, can try to help deal with it. And, and I know you may have in your mind still that silly little backhanded insult by the lady on the worship team, but the prob- that problem is not likely to reach the stage that we're talking about now. But there are other things that might. There are sinful and harmful behaviors that people will not repent of. There are words that people will, will refuse to stop repeating. There are ongoing acts of rebellion against church leadership and teaching. These are the things that are, that are more likely to end up with the elders. And then, if they don't listen to the elders, step five sounds kind of shocking, especially coming from the lips of Jesus. He says, if the person doesn't listen to the church, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, some people will immediately say, well, Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors, right? So what he's really telling us is just, he's telling his disciples to love these people no matter what. Okay, that's really bad Bible interpretation. Matthew is written to a largely Jewish audience who would know exactly what he meant when he said this. The pagans and the tax collectors are the people on the outside of the community. So what Jesus is saying here is, at some point along the line, there needs to be a kind of separation. And in cases of of very public or very significant sin, like we talked about before, this may even lead to removal from church membership and asking a person not to come back to church until he's repented. With smaller offenses, it might not mean the whole church. It might just mean a person can no longer be in that small group or is removed from some ministry position or some situation in the church. But in both cases, here's the thing. Even though pagans and tax collectors may be on the outside looking in, they are always invited to repent and to come back, always. And if they truly repent, they are restored, in most cases, to the same local church and to the same position they were in before. That's the goal. This actually happens, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When you read through that chapter, you'll find out that Paul had told the Corinthian church to discipline a member who had done something particularly egregious. But they have, he has actually repented for after being disciplined, and Paul says, now, don't, now you can take him back. He has repented, and so now you need to accept him, you need to bring him back, you need to love him, and he says, you need to comfort this brother, because if you don't, Satan's going to have the upper hand. So, just in trying to start to bring things to a little bit of a close, with regard to our church, okay, let me just say this, that I hope we don't have to apply steps four and five very often, if ever, and we shouldn't really have to, but we need to be ready if necessary because Jesus takes very seriously the sin that has the potential to go widespread or to blow up a church because he loves the church. At the same time, I can pretty much guarantee you when you look at the screen there and the, and the steps that we're going to be dealing with, um, and you can go ahead and project step five there if you wouldn't mind, that we are going to have to do steps one and two pretty often and sometimes step three. Because it is impossible to have a church this size filled with human beings, filled, even born-again human beings, trying to do kingdom business together without people offending each other from time to time. So, so very briefly, okay, here are four challenges for, for living together in a church filled with imperfect human beings, okay? First of all, be alert. Be alert. It's, it's, and what I mean by that is, it is not always easy to tell when your words or actions might have hurt another believer. 
Another thing I think, as Gary Smalley also says, is that the world is made up of butterflies and buffaloes. A buffalo will just, you know, he'll sit there just eating the grass and he's got flies flying around his head and everything else. He has no idea what's going on. He's stepping on all sorts of things and he doesn't care. A butterfly, on the other hand, is affected by every little zephyr of wind that comes around that's blowing all over the place and sensitive to everything. And you know, butterflies and buffaloes, they marry each other all the time for some reason. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But if, especially if you're a buffalo, <laughs> as I am sometimes, you need to be alert. You need to watch what's happening. Open your eyes, because if you're paying attention, you will probably notice. Listen, I cannot tell you how many times in the last 19 and a half years that a brother or sister in this church has come up to me and apologized for something that didn't offend me in the least. Sometimes I'm not even sure what they're talking about. But you know what? That's okay. My respect for those people only grew because they were showing that kind of sensitivity. So don't be afraid to overdo it just a little bit when it comes to making sure that you are staying in harmony with fellow believers in the church. Ephesians tells us that we have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here's the thing. If, if you're in doubt, apologize. Have the conversation. Second, be approachable. And for that matter, be willing to listen to correction. Believe me, I know what it's like to face criticism and to face a person who has been offended. I have had people come to me and call me out on decisions I've made or on my leadership style. I have other, I've had other people tell me that my words have hurt or offended them. And I know what the first reflex is, because I know what it is for me and probably for all of you. What the first reflex is, it's to get defensive, right? It's to justify yourself. It's to assume that the other person is either ill-informed or unreasonable or hypersensitive. One of those three things. So you make an excuse. You deny the offense. Maybe throw somebody else under the bus if you can. You know, there, there are a lot of really attractive options at that point. But I am learning instead to take a deep breath, listen, and consider what gift, what blessing God has for me in this situation? Because I know that even if this is nothing more than a misunderstanding, God is still in this somewhere, and Jesus is very present. And these discussions can be painful, but the writer of Proverbs tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. We will not reach maturity in Christ without the sharpening that comes from our faithful fellow Christians who love us enough to confront us even if the exchanges are kind of messy and even if the issues aren't always cut and dry. Which leads to the third challenge. Recognize the promise. Recognize there's a lot of promise here. Not only can successful conflict resolution bring more intimacy to two people and make each of them more mature in Christ, but it can be really good for the church as well, the whole church, when this is happening a lot. One of the great growth spurts for the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts happened in chapter 6. When they had a big blow-up, there was a pretty big conflict and even some pretty loud complaining. You can look it up. It had to do with the benevolent ministry. But with the Holy Spirit's help, they solved it without blowing up the church. And then it says, right after that it says, and then the church grew rapidly and even a bunch of formerly hostile Jewish priests started coming to Christ. Church family, just look at the news. It is very unusual today almost unheard of today, to see a conflict resolved in a peaceful and constructive and positive way, right? 
But if the church were to pull it off, what a witness, right? That's being a true kingdom outpost in a world that is looking for answers. And so lastly, and probably should be firstly and lastly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, he said, for they shall be called sons of God. And of course, Jesus, the ultimate son of God, was also the ultimate peacemaker. But did you notice that peacemaking for Jesus did not mean staying out of the fray? That peacemaking for Jesus did not mean sweeping sin under the rug. No, he got involved. He, he faced human conflict and bitterness and rage head on. And it didn't make him any friends either. By the time Jesus died, his form of peacemaking had everybody mad at him. The Jews, the Romans, it didn't matter. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots, the whole crowd. They, these people could not agree with, about anything to each other. But the one thing they could agree on altogether was that this peacemaker had to die. And so on the cross, Jesus willingly took all of the rancor and the bitterness and the spite and the envy and every other kind of relationship poison you can possibly think of upon himself, and he broke its power. And he brought us peace. Peace with God, and then peace with each other. Because Christ died for us, and this is the foundation here, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We are no longer God's enemies. We once were, but we're not anymore. For the one who is trusting in Jesus All is forgiven. You've been freed. And if we can really understand that peace, that freedom and that peace that we have with God, that there is no offense that will drive him away. There is no hidden dark secret that you have that will send him running really fast in the opposite direction. There is no poison emotion you cannot bring to him. There is no offense that you cannot leave at his feet. When we understand the safety and the protection of that peace, then I think we will begin to have the humility, the courage, the patience, and the openness to lay down our swords and to speak peace to one another. Even at times when peace leads to necessary conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Let's pray.